0: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Professor Tooley. I'm joined in this conversation by Professor James Tooley. He's the Vice-Chancellor at the University of Buckingham. Interestingly, one of a very small number of private universities in the United Kingdom. He's also Professor of Educational Entrepreneurship and Policy at that university. Recent groundbreaking research on low cost private education has won him numerous awards. His book based on this research, The Beautiful Tree, a personal journey into how the world's poorest are educating themselves, was a bestseller. He's co-founded chains of low cost schools in Ghana, India, Honduras and most recently in his native England. His work has featured in documentaries on American PBS television and the BBC. His latest book is Really Good Schools, Global Lessons for High Calibre, Low Cost Education. James, thanks so much for giving us your time here in London.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: And I think what we're going to talk about will interest Australian parents. Uh, Like parents everywhere, I think they see education as incredibly important. I think they probably worry a bit about the quality of that education Mm. sometimes and whether the kids are being taught to think or what to think. Yeah. I think they probably also now are starting to worry a little bit about the money they put into education at a tertiary level and whether they're getting good value. Mm. So can I start with something really basic? Right. Um, What is...
1: Education, exactly, and what's it supposed to do in your view as an educator? So, the way you've asked the question leads me to say, let's distinguish education from schooling or schooling or college or whatever. So, let's make that distinction first. And education, it's a contested concept, but basically, it has two distinct meanings, really. One is, if you like, preparation for adult life, whether that's adult life as a in a democracy, adult life as a, as a citizen, adult life as a parent, or adult life as a worker. It's preparation for a flourishing, rewarding life. That's one tradition of education. An older tradition, which actually, I think you'd be quite sympathetic to, but certainly I'm sympathetic to, and doesn't rule out the first, that the two can coexist. The second tradition would be, initiation into the best that has been thought and said in the world so' it's in our in our sort of I think in our sort of examples it would be initiation into Western culture or culture more generally but with uh, 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 we not ruling out an emphasis on certain areas there so it 's the best that's been thought and said in the world that's education schooling is a vehicle for that but education can also take place outside of schooling. You know, when you and I read, or when perhaps listeners uh, are listening to this or or watching this podcast now, um, that can be education. And in the past, in Victorian England, for example, actually um, education could take place in pub reading rooms or pub discussions, or of course in the church, in in the synagogue and so on. So distinguish those two and think of those two traditions preparation for adult life and initiation into the best that's been thought and said and your own institution
0: where you are now the vice chancellor mm. sounds really interesting it's private i understand uh, yeah. it was it's quite new it was set up by people who were looking for education that was free of outside interference including by governments yes. because those who pay the pipe of call the tune Call the tune. yeah um can you tell us a bit about that uh,
1: yeah uh, that and the I background ca- of your university i could carry on for ages about this so you might want to stop me but the university of buckingham it was the idea for it came from an institute of economic affairs paper in 1969 called towards an independent university and it was based around the idea that even back then and of course now the situation is much worse but even back then it was felt particularly by some oxford dons that the the state was encroaching too much on higher education it was regulating too much it was trying to influence it too much and so the idea was let's create a university that's totally independent of state funding and therefore naively i'm afraid they've they believed it would be totally independent of state regulation too. And so the idea came up in the late 60s. In 1973, the the University College was formed. And in 1976, the University College at Buckingham was opened and the matriculation speaker was one Margaret Thatcher. And she, she, she gave an absolutely brilliant speech about, Themes relevant to this. Do you mind if I read that? That'd be terrific because she yeah. was actually quite a wordsmith. She was a wordsmith.
0: So <laughs> Which she, reflected a deep thoughtfulness,
1: yeah, I have to say. Deeply thoughtful, deeply thoughtful about the importance of the University of Buckingham at the time. So in 1976, remember, she was leader of the opposition, the first female leader of the opposition ever. Um, and she was, of course, about to become in three years' time prime minister, the first female prime minister as well. But she said. um, To a free people accustomed to great richness of private initiative, there is something undesirable, indeed debilitating about the present mood of the country in which so many look not to themselves or their fellows for new initiative, but to the state. And then she goes on i as a politician must not prescribe to you independence we must remember is not a gift it is not something that governments confer but something that a free people enjoys and uses and then finally this last phrase here is it's a really powerful i think unless we are worthy and able to take advantage of a freedom not yet extinguished in our land, we shall become pale shadows like civilizations before us who were eventually thrust aside and dispossessed by more vigorous rivals. I think the speech is incredibly powerful. Those were a couple of excerpts from it. Um, But she believed in our university after she became prime minister, while she was prime minister rather, we got our Royal Charter in 1983, the only private university to have that Royal Charter. And then when she was, she was pushed out of politics, wasn't she? When she resigned from politics in 1992, she was then our chancellor, our figurehead for seven years. And again, came frequent to our university, loved our university and, 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 um, and cherished this little beacon of freedom in the higher education world. Mm. And that beacon, I'm trying to keep alive. I've been in the role of Vice Chancellor one and a half years now. Um, it's hard keeping this alive in the current climate, but I'm trying to keep that beacon for freedom alive, the beacon for celebrating, you know, the, the best that's thought and been thought and said in our culture. Um, and yeah, so that, that's the University of Buckingham. It's a small university, small private, but with a great tradition. And I'm trying to create a Margaret Thatcher chair for freedom, democracy, and the rule of law, I'm going to call it, um, to keep those traditions, the traditions that I just read to you, really, alive.
0: Let's divide out then the the two issues uh, that immediately come to my mind. The first is, um, that we'll come back to, uh, does being independent of government in this day and age give you any freedom? But the second one is, the raging debate in America, and we see a lot of echoes of it in Australia, and I'm sure you do in Britain, about the degree to which parents should have the right to determine what their children are taught, yeah. and the state intervening. And yeah. you see it particularly with some of the woke issues in America, where uh, you've recently seen uh, a governorship of a state change yeah. because the parents agreed with somebody who they would not normally have agreed with politically. Uh, who said Still that yeah. um, uh, amount of the charge that parents should know and should have say over what their children are taught versus the existing government who said no, uh, parents shouldn't
1: always know. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, it is to me. Yeah, yeah, and we'll look at that's the second part of it. Um, I, actually, uh, when the state first intervened in education in this country, it, it did a little bit from eighteen thirty-three onwards, but primarily it intervened from eighteen seventy onwards and there were numerous there was there were surveys but there was a very powerful survey called the Newcastle Commission report named after Lord Newcastle it was published in 1861 I think did the survey in 1858 and it found that the vast majority of children were in school um, 95% or something like that um, for I think it's about six years 5.7 years and some of these, uh, you know, a lot of these parents were of course sending their children to um, church schools. A lot of the very poor were in the ragged, the philanthropic, ph- ph- philanthropic schools. Lord Shaftesbury's work, I think. Exactly. But there were, was also this category of for-profit schools. That was the right. category that was there. And those were sort of low-cost private schools set up as initiatives. But why I mentioned this in this context was, the commissioners, you know, the good and the great of Victorian England, and I'm sure they were good and great and well-meaning, they couldn't understand why parents were sending their children to these for-profit schools rather than the church schools and so on. And they, they wrote disparagingly about these poor parents who know nothing. They want to be in control they want accountability, they want their children to be learning the things that will get them work, not the things they can learn in Sunday school. And they're going to Sunday school anyway, or going to church. And it was, it's, it's, I, I wish I had the quotes for you, but they're very, it's very interesting the way these good and the great didn't understand even back in 1870, 1860, why poor parents would want control. And fast forward to what you've just said now, it's a disgrace, you know, schools, State schools, governments got involved with education in loco parentis. That was that was the phase. Only we're doing it because parents need to work, parents are doing other things. And so we are acting in the role, in you know, for the parents. And slowly you you know, the whole thing about, about the role of the state is as you know, I mean, it can be explained in various ways, but once you give a little bit of control to the state, it gets more and more control more and more control the institutional bias will lead to the sort of thing you described in America, the sort of thing we're seeing in Australia and England, where the state doesn't care what parents want for their children, dismisses it, just like the commissioners did in 1860, dismisses what they want. And so you get things that I think in future years, people will look back and say, well, that's barbarism what you inflict on children. And uh, this is very
0: interesting you say, Um, Frank Ferruti talks about the emergence of an expertocracy, Hmm. you know, a sort of um, elite that thinks they know best. Yes. And weak governments, high turnover of ministers, cabinets not in control, all of that sort of stuff. They say, well, we know how to run the place anyway. And so it doesn't matter who's actually in the halls of power any given day. We'll run the place. So you're saying right back in know a, a late uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, 1850s, 1860s, yeah, Newcastle yeah. report,
1: yeah.
0: you had people then saying they know better. See, one of the things yeah, I learned in yeah. 20 years in public life yeah. was never, never equate education and even intelligence with wisdom. Mm-hmm. You'd meet people in the back blocks, as we call it in Australia, yeah. who yeah. were as wise as any academic I ever met. Yeah. And, and they see the importance of ensuring their kids are given the tools with which yes, to think and yes, learn, yes. but not told what's right and wrong by a bureaucrat. That's for mum and dad.
1: Yeah, and if mum and dad want to seek advice, of course they can. You know, mm. if, if there was a, 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 a liberated system of education outside of the state, mm. of course there would be, which education? Mm. There would be mm. guides to you know, how to educate best, where to go, what, to, mm. what facilities to use, what resources. So you know, it's not saying that mum and dad don't need advice or don't benefit from it, but they can talk to their their siblings, their parents, their you know, everyone can come in with that advice. You don't need the state to come in. Yeah, an expertocracy, I suppose, that's valid. That's a useful phrase. But I, that's in a sense, yeah. Is there a conspiracy, or is this just say? a gross thing that's emerged because you've given power at one stage to people and their power, you know, people like to expand power, don't they, and bureaucrats are the same as anyone else. They want it's a great
0: battle in democracy, yeah, to make yeah. certain that the power doesn't end up in the wrong place, that yeah. governments are downstream of culture. That brings us back to the next issue. So your university was set up as a private institution so that it would be free of government interference. Yeah. And a lot of parents would think, well, that's why I'm sending my kid to a private school, because I want to ensure that it's not the state dictating what my yeah. children will be taught. I'm looking for a higher standard of independent thinking and instruction and what have you. And in Australia, you know, you're talking very high numbers of parents who are still opting for private schools, and they'll stretch themselves financially to do it. Yeah, I'm often wondered why... Uh, supporters of the state system are not more challenged by the idea that there's a judgment being passed. Yeah. They want a higher standard. But the, the real question arises, does that independence yeah. from government funding, uh, on paper at least, do, do, does it really mean that you're getting a, a genuinely high quality independent education?
1: And the answer, unfortunately, is no. Um, or, or at least if I understood mm. where I thought that you were going with the question was, does does independence of government funding lead to yes. independence of government regulation? Yep. Yep. And it doesn't. Mm. And this was, in a sense, the naivety of people yep. back you know, in the 60s and 70s when they were yep. thinking of my university. Um, and the, the same thing applies to schools. So we, we have we're governed by the 2017 Higher Education Research Act which set up a body called OFS, the Office for Students. And our private university, um, that there are 24 regulations or sets of regulations that universities, all universities have to meet. Um, Our private university, or or so-called public universities have to meet, our our private university has to meet 21 of those 24 regulations. Now, the three that we've, so we have three freedoms, if you like, from other universities. They are precious and they're you know, they're important, but it's amazing how the government feels it has a right, even on a, in a university that's not in the receipt of public funding to regulate. And the same goes with schools. I, we may talk about this later, but I set up this low-cost private school in Durham, in, in a city in the north of England, northeast of England. And um, it took us 465 days to get registered, to meet, you know, show we're meeting the regulations, we then had to have various inspections. And there are so many rules and regulations that even a private school, completely independent of state funding, and of course, at that stage, saving the state from funding kids, they have to meet an amazing range of regulations as well. So it is government wants control of education for whatever reason, and government controls regulates much more than I believe is appropriate and and once you start doing that of course then you can regulate in different ways you know in, in England we have the new relationship and sex education which is definitely in my view overstepping the mark um, in terms of what government should be able to prescribe in any school but particularly a private school definitely taking away the role of parents in initiating their children as they see best, as they see fit in terms of their religious and philosophical beliefs and values, initiating into ideas on sex and relationships. Overstepping the mark, but once you allow government to, it's going to carry on overstepping the mark, but even in private schools,
0: yeah. To tease this out a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think my observation would be there's a greater diversity of views uh, and less political correctness in, in the private system in Australia, yeah. but they could do a lot better. Yes. Now, uh, an academic I respect greatly in Australia suggested to me that part of the problem is the selection process, that mm. even in the private uh, universities, academics will tend to choose people who align. Yeah. Uh, and so if you take uh, the broad figures as I understand them in this country, around 50% of people would, decide, they would self-describe as conservative-leaning mm. and, and around 50% left of centre. Mm. Uh, it's not so very different in Australia. But if you look at academia and those who teach, almost none identify as yeah, anything personal, other than yeah. left of centre. Yeah. Uh, and so they select other academics and yeah. other teachers and other tutors yeah. who fit with their, their worldview. Yeah, And so there's this cry for diversity, but it often doesn't extend to diversity of thinking. Is yeah. that? It's yeah. a sensitive question. You may not want to answer it, but I'm just interested in your views. No, and, you felt you could
1: and it wasn't always thus. You know, mm. if you go back 50 years to look at academics, they were much more representative of political mm. views in the country at large. And it's not that there's no conservative academics, but they are small in number and small in percentage. And, you know, in a way, what you've described is, you know, a very human response isn't it yes you know, it is it's you know, understandable we're appointing people and mm. yeah someone But that doesn't in. make it a good thing no it doesn't make it a good thing but so what's what's the alternative here and for me one can go the wrong way what, what those what did Ronald Reagan said he said what's the the eight most frightening words in the English language i'm, I'm from the government, government and, I'm and i'm here to help, here. help, you. help you yeah and <laughs> so you could say oh let's government help us yeah. get those diversity of political and philosophical views in the university and I think that's largely mistaken. There might be a place for government, you know, to ensure that you can't be hounded out because of academic, you know, because you're overstepping what the community says you should be talking about. You know, you're engaged in academic freedom and free speech. So there's probably some government role there. I'm not denying that. But do we, I value institutional autonomy and the universities are, universities are proud universities of the past. Used to value institutional autonomy. They're now giving up so much of that, but let's not regulate them more. Uh, you know, I, I much prefer to see a, a sort of, as it were, a grassroots revolution, you know, people like us talking and encouraging acad- the academic institutions to become places of free speech and academic freedom and tolerance and acceptance and even celebration of different political and philosophical views. That's, that's a struggle we have, but don't let's get government doing this, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, well, you're playing to sympathetic ears yeah, on my yeah, part. I, yeah. I'm a
0: profound believer yeah. that government in a democracy should be downstream of culture.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And in the end, culture will always be driven by people's beliefs and values. Mm. You know, The nation of Britain is no more than the sum total of the Britons who make it up. Mm. Same of Australia. What do they think? How do they see things? Yeah. And in a democracy, they've got to be free to go where they want. But, but um, government should be responsive to that rather than trying to dictate yeah. as a broad principle. Yeah. Um, tell me about the universities in this country, in your view. Are we pumping too many of our young people into our universities? Uh, are we yeah. under-emphasising you know, the satisfying life and, and, and financial rewards of... Um, the opportunities that are available for those who don't go to university. Yeah.
1: I, I think you're right. And in fact, Tony Blair was uh, in the news on the weekend, I think on the bank holiday weekend, just gone um, talking about, we need 70% of young people going into university now. Um, he set the target at 50%, which I think has been reached now. He now wants to go to 70%. And uh, I, 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 I looked up, because and he said this would solve the skills shortage, show, solve the productivity problem. In, in, in the UK, if you look up where the skill shortages are, things like welding come up, plumbing, um, software, you know, engineering, mechanical engineering. You know, they could well be catered for by people in the universities, or they could equally well be catered by people doing short, focused courses in those areas. But a lot of where the skill shortages are not things that will be produced by uh, universities um, doing courses that have questionable purchase in the future. Now, I'm not against people pursuing courses for the sake of the love of the subject, you know. It's great that people want to study philosophy and history and um, for the love of the subject, and they can use it elsewhere in, in, in their future lives, but they are enriched by it. But There's a lot of courses where people are thrown inferior content, inferior substance, and don't really benefit from it, in my view, and and gain lots of negative things like negative work habits, negative views on our culture and our civilization. So these things happen. But yeah, I I, I think go with where where you are. University is great. I'm a vice chancellor. Of course I want to encourage people to come to university and we do great courses, law, you know, business, humanities, social science, medicine, all these things are wonderful to attract people to if it's right for you. But if you are really practical and think actually, I want to be an electrician or a plumber or a welder, my guess is you're going to be much more successful if you follow that route, become an apprentice, create a small business, which can grow into a bigger business. than if you go the university route where you might end up with a pretty inferior degree from a not so great university and at best become a pretty unfulfilled, dissatisfied middle manager. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I think the answer is yes, we are. We are pushing people, too many people, into university. There are many ways of becoming fulfilled and prosperous and, uh, and flourishing human beings.
0: You touched on something there, which is the passing on of ideology. It often seems, I think, to the person in the street that our universities are encouraging their students, particularly in the humanities, but not only in the humanities, mm. towards even antipathy even towards our own culture our own heritage. is yeah. a lack of knowledge of the good things we've achieved and an extraordinary emphasis on the times we've got it wrong. We see it, I think, in the de movement around the place. Yeah. There's a lack of contextualisation and a lack of yes. understanding yeah. that people lived in different eras, a lack of celebration of heroes who have set out to change the world, a lack of recognition that actually, if you want to change the world, you'd better hope that you're in a free and liberal and democratic society Not an autocratic
1: one. Yes, I mean, one would hope that universities would be the bulwark here, that they They would be the ones who want people to see all sides of an argument, want people to be able to engage in an argument and Mm -hmm. recognize strengths and weaknesses of arguments, but strengths and weaknesses of what people have done in the past. I mean, I always think universities should be engaged in what you might call a Hegelian dialectic, isn't it? You know, you have, you have a thesis, you then have an antithesis or antithesis, and then you have a synthesis, you know, you, so you engage in that debate all the time. And you don't just, I mean, it, you don't just present one view all the time. One of the virtues of free speech and academic freedom is precisely that knowledge grows and you can veer towards the truth or as close as you can get to the truth through that 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 debate. And you're right, I, I I think I think you're right. Universities are becoming, rather than these bastions of that development of knowledge and aspiring to the truth, they are becoming much more restricted and saying this is the truth, you better believe it. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Now I haven't got chapter and verse for you there, but I think it's probably true. One's one's sort of sense, one's anecdotal sense suggests that's true.
0: One of the interesting developments to me, apart from the sheer number of people going into universities, young people, is that there's been uh, quite a significant, very significant ramp up of the number of women going into university. My grandmother uh, in Australia, around 1907 or eight, graduated into medicine and her family said, no, you can't do that. We need you to do something else. Look after the younger kids because she was the eldest. I mean, those days are gone and that is terrific. And in fact, in that field, in Australia, there are more girls now graduating in medicine than there are boys. Um, But that's true overall. I wonder whether we now don't have a problem with a lot of boys underperforming.
1: Yeah. Any observations that, uh, that you would make along those lines? Yeah. First of all, it's to endorse what you said, that I'm a freedom lover mm. and it, I want Absolutely. individuals to be free to choose yeah. their lifestyles and their, their futures. And uh, this, we, are, we enable women mm. and men to be yeah. able to do that now. So that's very important. The second thing is, yeah, it it actually reflects a little bit on what I said earlier about, you know, if you're an expert and your hands, being a plumber, electrician or welder, may actually be better for you than Mm. going into higher education. Um, And and, and so first of all, I want to say, you know, let's be very clear. It may be that boys, young men, are making very rational choices. They see actually there's a big debt Mm. I get if I go to university and, I'm not particularly I don't particularly like academic work. Mm. I'm not particularly enthusiastic about it and actually I'd perhaps rather just go out of, you know, get out of the the, the treadmill of schooling, go and do a business, go and do, edu- you know, go and do start my own business, uh, become an apprentice or whatever. So there could be a very rational explanation here. So it may not be without further, you know, mm. uh, unpicking of this. It may not be a problem or it may only be partially a problem for some young men. But that that said, I think um, certainly there there are certain that there is a problem with particular groups of young men just getting out of schooling altogether. I was there talking about perhaps going into higher education you know maybe men making not making that decision is a good thing for some. But dropping out of schooling altogether before you become literate and numerate and functionally illiterate and functionally numerate, that's another issue isn't it and and Maybe there's a problem with low expectations of certain groups of boys, and it's particularly white working class boys are a big problem now. Yeah, white working class, massive
0: problem in America. Yeah,
1: massive millions, literally. We know
0: from the research, just dropping out.
1: Yeah, and maybe Mm. you know, maybe we we shouldn't wash our hands of this and say, "Fine, Mm. it's okay." We should actually say, "Why? What's happening here?" Maybe the feminists in the nineteen seventies, when I was growing up, they were all about girl friendly schooling, you know, making school's girlfriend, there's a book by that title, I think, Girl Friendly Schooling, I remember very well. Maybe we've made them too girl friendly. And maybe we want to think about how we make some aspects boy friendly. That there are differences.
0: There are differences in the yeah. way they learn.
1: Yeah, um, mm. and this is on average, and of course you can find you know, individuals, boys who behave more like the girl average and vice versa. But, you know, exams are one sort of thing. Boys, or the, the boy average, or, um, typically likes that high pressure and you know all uh, you know summative exam at the end of things where there's so much pressure you've got to do really well and get and focus on that time and you can be a bit relaxed the rest of the time the average girl you know the the, the data shows don't like that high stress high value exam at the end but prefer you know shorter nuggets shorter um, you know, continuous assessment and so on and maybe to be fair, you've got to have both systems, maybe the choice between both systems. Um, so so you know, I, I think there could be a problem, but let's not mm. jump to conclusions before we examine you know, the it, it problem in all its nuance.
0: Now let's change gears and come mm. to something that uh, you're very passionate about and yes. you're widely recognised for having been extremely effective at, and that's the whole question of um, affordable non-state schooling, How, what, what's really driven your your interest? I and mean, you've, you've gone to some pretty dangerous places to see what's actually happening with children's education in developing countries. You've yeah. been into war-torn countries, developing countries, mm. inhospitable places. Yeah. Uh, and you spent a lot of time looking at these inexpensive private schools.
1: Yeah.
0: We know great progress is being made. We're so into self-flagellation in our societies now that we sometimes fail to recognize the good we've been able to do. Yeah.
1: What drove your interest? Yeah, so um, you're right, I've been to some of the most dangerous places on on this planet. Um, South Sudan in the Civil War, um, Honduras in the middle of gang warfare, Sierra Leone, Liberia, parts of Nigeria are pretty dangerous. Um, I often felt like Daniel in the lion's den, that I was committed to doing this work and I never, I never felt at risk. And there were often times when I could have been at risk, um, but in the end, it was okay. There's a little story from Honduras, I don't know if this is relevant, but I was going into some of these very poor, um, what would you call them anyway? Favalas, I guess you call them in Honduras. And this one was part of the, is it Gang 18 or Gang, three territory and signified by the tennis shoes are thrown over all the wires. Yeah. And I drove in with my companion who was showing me around Pedro. And it was in an old car. I shut the door and I thought, oh no, I've shut the car key inside, you know. I've locked it and, you know it's an old car so I couldn't yeah. get in, you know. He said, don't worry. He called over one of the gang members who came and broke into my car in about five minutes and gave me the key. So I thought, well, actually they could have done that any day yeah. so clearly something's going on and then we went and, and in this community center i was with all the mothers there and we were celebrating the future opening of a school there a low-cost private school which you can talk about in a second but um and then pedro took a photograph and when he he sent it to me he pictured, he said did you see the guy behind you and it's one of the it's a gang member doing all this sort of complicated signals with his hand and i I get so the gangs knew I, I was there, but I guess these signals didn't mean. Well, they meant nice things about Professor Tully, not nasty things. So that, that was that was so complex. But these low-cost private schools, I discovered them, and I use that word advice. I discovered them, as it were, for myself, but also for the West, in India, twenty odd years ago, and no one had described this phenomenon before. That you know, when you think of the poor, they must be going to government schools, or they must be going to. Uh, Uh, well government schools or or out of school and my work discovered that actually uh, these kids were not out of school typically they were in school they were in low-cost private schools and these schools were set up by typically by by entrepreneurs in the communities used by the very poor affordable by the very poor outperforming the government schools and doing so you know in in a scalable sustainable fashion So this was a huge revelation to me. I mean, I I was so excited about this. I almost almost found it was like an epiphany for me. I had this moment where I'd become, for various reasons, my PhD was about private education. I'd had experience as a young man as a teacher in Zimbabwe in my twenties, and somehow was bringing all those things together and realizing that actually my concern for the poor—you know, if you're concerned with private education, well, that's about the rich. My concern for the poor, I was able to see that. I was able to move forward with private education for them. And since then, I've discovered this phenomenon across the developing world, gone to someone. And, and I actually wanted to go to the most difficult places because people would say, oh, you found this phenomenon in Ghana, Lagos, Nigeria, Kenya, India, those are not difficult places. I had a you know, headline saying how the po- world's poorest are educating themselves. Those are not the world's poorest. So I went looking for the world's poorest in South Sudan, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and was able to show the same phenomenon there. The majority of kids in private schools, outperforming those left behind the government schools. And, real, and, and, and most relevant to our discussion, our early discussion, this was showing again, or questioning, why do you need the state involved in education? If the world's poorest are eschewing state education, if they are, Unwilling to in acquiesce in the mediocrity of state education, then that brings into question surely why you need the state involved in education at all. And so that is sort of almost as like a circle back to where we were before, questioning the role of the state in education. You don't need it. You don't need it for the poorest people on the planet.
0: Well, that sets up plenty of questions, I've got to yeah. say, in my mind. Yeah. Uh, firstly, let's, let's have some numbers. Uh, I understand from your research, seventy to eighty percent of urban poor children in sub-Saharan Africa yeah. and South Asia go to private schools. Exactly. Seventy to eighty percent. Yeah, and it's also estimated that there's four hundred and fifty thousand of these schools in India,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and fourteen thousand in Lagos um, yeah. and Nigeria. Yeah,
1: Lagos State alone. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah state, Lagos yeah.
0: State alone. Yeah, yeah sorry. In yeah. other words, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and and uh, well, I guess the answer to the question is why are parents choosing them? It's because yeah. they get better outcomes. Yes. But how does an entrepreneur in these really poor areas make this work from an economic point of view, James? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're poor areas. By definition, they haven't got much money. The parents, like parents everywhere, will make big sacrifices yeah. to get their kids yeah. into these schools. Yeah. And then presumably those entrepreneurs actually have to be able to evidence that you bring my kid here, your kid here. I'll outperform. I'll yes. give you a better product than you'll get yeah. in the-
1: Yeah. So, so critics of this, you know, and, and those sort of mm. critics of this work would tend to be those critics of everything we've talked about earlier, you know, in terms of mm. our ambition for u- universities and so on. But critics of this sort of work say, well, parents are being hoodwinked, okay? Mm. They think private is better, so they'll, they'll, you know, they'll scrimp and save and they'll be hood, hoodwinked by unscrupulous mm. business people. The research, doesn't, the research shows the opposite. So, really? And it's not just my research. Research after research shows these schools are outperforming the, the, the government schools. So very importantly, parents are not being hoodwinked. They are making rational choices about what is best for their children. This is, and how do they find yeah. out? Well, it's in the tried and tested ways. Parents find out. If you're poor, you talk to your friends. You talk to your mother. You talk to your brothers and siblings. And they will tell us... What makes for good education? Now you're... It just comes back to this point yeah. we were talking about earlier. So often, the
0: expertocracy or the elites, yeah, yeah, whatever you yeah, want yeah. to talk about it, is so patronizing that they assume uh, that somehow or other they know best and mistake this great essential that I think I learned in all my years in public life, which is that <laughs> learning is not necessarily acquainted with wisdom. Yeah. If that
1: makes sense, yeah, no, it makes sense. And but the fundamental point is there, you know. So so many experts now. The, now we're talking about experts in the development yeah. industry, if you like. Um, they come along and they accuse me and you know people who are doing this sort of work. You know, you're you're first of all pretending the parents are better served, but you are you are undermining the public system yeah. by allowing the majority of parents in urban areas to go into these schools and i would say to any one of these um these experts you look a parent in the eye a poor parent who's nothing very little who's got one chance for their little johnny or little susan to go to school and you tell them you can't go to the private school then you you're making the wrong choice and actually you've got to go to this school which you've already rejected. <laughs> you've rejected that mm. government school, that public school, you're going over here because you realise it's better for you and all the evidence shows it's better. Um, so it's an extraordinary revolution, but it ties into what we're saying about parents knowing best, parents wanting accountability. Why are these schools better? Because they're accountable to the parents. The schools know, you know, they, they, they run on tight budgets. I've run a few of these schools. I know how tight their budgets are. Um, that if two or three parents take their children out, the school is non-viable as a business so instead of waiting for those parents to take their children out you make sure that the parents are satisfied with what you're delivering high quality typically academic education knowledge-based education and uh, you you make sure that's provided so that you don't lose your business you don't go out of business
0: so what motivates the people who set those schools up Is Profit? Is it philanthropy? Is it compassion? Is it a mixture of all
1: three or do you get some who do it for profit, some who do it out of compassion? What what drives them? So so it's a mixture of all those, but typically, so so here's the figures from the slums of Monrovia in Liberia. Mm -hmm. 61% are what you might call for-profit schools. Mm -hmm. Actually, this is not typical. This is just figures Mm -hmm. from Liberia. Uh, 61% um, for-profit and Mm -hmm. the other 39% a mixture of church Philan- uh, church, community, philanthropy, and mosque, okay? And why it's not typical is t- typically that 60% figure is slightly higher in other places. You know, there are fewer church, mosque, or whatever schools. But, but they're for profit, but let's, let's distinguish, be careful of that term. What it means is, if I'm an entrepreneur in a poor area, I can set up a school and I will be able to provide for my family, you know, I can extract a surplus to provide for my family this is not profiteering and you know, they're not making massive profits giving it to shareholders they're able to provide make a living out of this so that's very important to stress and what sort of people do it I, you know you might i i see three different groups so often you have a mum who will um she will be quite more educated herself or see the value of school and so she starts a little kindergarten for you know she's got three kids herself she tells the neighbor bring your kids in she's got a dozen kids starts at kindergarten and then when the kids are ready to go to grade one the other mums or dads say they're happy with you i'm sure grade one isn't that different from kindergarten or reception whatever you want to call it why don't they stay with you and so a school is grown from the bottom up as it were another typical way a school might start is from the top down where the kids are getting ready for the national exams and they they're in a cramming class they're in a sort of class where you know they get primed for the exams. And the kids will tell the teacher, well, look, we're, we're learning more from you than we are at school. Why don't we come with you full time? And so a school has grown from the top down. But there are people now who see, ah, oh, schools are a successful way to create a small business you know, that I can run, provide for my family. So there are people now just come in because they see it as a, as a possible option in, in poor areas.
0: To come back to my own country, where more than one in three children are now educated in the private sector yeah. in Australia, more than one in three, Yeah, um, they do, most of those private sectors, depending on the schools, uh, they do get some government funding. Yes. No. Uh, one argument would be that, yes, they get some government funding, but it's still saving the taxpayer a lot of money yeah. because the bulk of the contribution of the, the cost of those schools comes from the parents. Um, but the other argument that's run all the time, that's very interesting. I'd be interested in your views on because I'm sure you hear echoes of this everywhere in the world. Is oh well yes that's because the public sector's underfunded. If you just pump more money in, <laughs> you'll get the results you're yeah. looking for, and you can close all these terrible private schools. Yeah, and that's sometimes driven by ideology. We want them in the yeah. state system yeah. to make sure that they're brought up politically correctly.
1: Yes, I mean I think that's. Probably a reason, and again, it's quite hard to prove that, but it does look like you know, if kids are in a state system, they are much easier to control than if they're in an anarchic libertarian private sector. I don't want to
0: sound anti-state school. I'm not. No. I'm I, seriously I not. Understood. They have an incredibly important yeah. role to play, Yeah. Uh, but I just think some of the arguments around them yes. are wrong.
1: Yeah. But, but on, on that resource thing. So... Forget what I've been doing in Africa, South Asia, and so on, Central America. Mm-hmm. C- come to England. So I've, I've set up, so inspired by my work overseas, people would say, Why doesn't such a thing happen in England mm-hmm. or America or Australia? When I've mm-hmm. given talks in all three places and three places, and people have said, Why isn't it happening? And so a few years back, I set up a low cost private school in the northeast of England, city of Durham. And our, our fees are £3,000 a year which is roughly one-half of the per capita funding in the state primary schools. One-half. There's about 6,000 yeah. funding in the state primary
0: schools. Per child. Per child. What age? Because in Australia, so, it would so vary this, between primary and secondary.
1: Yeah. So this, this is, this is you know, from four to 11, 12, that sort mm-hmm. of age. Um, and um, how do you do it? Well, we can do it. And the point I'm trying to make is, uh, so our school has been classified by the state inspector as a good, you know, which is a high-flying school, satisfied the inspectors, loved by parents, brilliant testimonials from the parents, some of whom are incidentally state school teachers. um, And we can do it, we've broken even this year and I, I wanted to, in a way to prove the philosophical point. I wasn't interested in making money, and perhaps to make money, you'd need the fees slightly higher. But nonetheless, for half of what per capita funding in the state sector, you can deliver a high-quality education. So I mean, that's just one example, but I think it's pretty- So you're packing far too many kids into a classroom. 20. <laughs> so very low. Yeah.
0: You're not cheating on that front.
1: You're not cheating on that front. We have.
0: You've got the teachers on starvation
1: wages. They're paid pretty good wages, yeah. and certainly there's no shortage of teachers want to come. They're operating in a slum. No, it's a substantial it's,
0: it's, it's, it's
1: actually a very nice building, and right. it, if it was substandard, the inspectors would have closed it ages ago. Yeah. So, you know, in a sense, this is this is the business model we're talking about. But yeah. it's possible to do, and, and I mean a simple rule of, I mean you can you can do it in your head. Twenty teacher, twenty students times three thousand pounds is sixty thousand pounds per class. The teachers on £30,000. It's £30,000 left for the rest of you know, resourcing and there's, as it were, mm-hmm. the amount that goes into running the school. And that is enough to break even.
0: And you've got class. people very keen to get their children into it. So you've got yeah. the numbers you need.
1: Yeah, it's a very small school, but we do have a waiting list now. And I want to, you know, I, I'm Vice Chancellor of the University of Buckingham, as you said, so at the moment I don't have time to focus on these other aspects, but I'm, I would very much like to expand that. But perhaps most importantly, I'd like to see others emulating this. I do get calls you know, from time to time from people saying, we're interested in this, you know, perhaps we can start something similar in the south of England or somewhere else in the Midlands. Mm. And I, I would like to see that happen because for me, it's all part of the whole discussion we're having is I don't believe the state has this role in education, certainly not the role it has today. And this is all about sort of wrestling bits of the education system away from the state. And um, low cost private schools, which do uh, uh, cu- uh, uh, you know, extend the private education sector away from just the elites, you know, the middle classes, the lower middle classes can access this education. That to me seems to be the right way forward to show alternatives to the state.
0: When we were in government in Australia, we introduced a funding package known as the new schools policy. Yeah. So what we took were weighted average indexes of parents based on postcode areas and the Australian Bureau of Statistic Numbers to get a handle on, on what parents could afford to pay in any given area and then funded the school on that basis, um, yeah. which actually created a lot more choice in education. Yes, yes. Um, so, a very important word. It was an interesting yeah. Yeah. model. Yeah. Yes. Now, now, you would, in many ways, I think, describe yourself as a classic liberal. And what I'm driving at is that choice is very important. And I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, you would see a strong sort of civic element to a community being, if you like, um, um, you know, one in which you've got strong institutions which mediate between the individual and the state. You yeah. know, it's schools, it's churches, families, religious churches, yeah. it's sporting clubs, it's volunteer organizations, even pubs, even pubs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, And these sort of understandings are breaking down. But it seems uh, where I join with you on that is that I think that's an important role in checking the reach and the pervasiveness of government. Yep. A strong civil society will neither want nor long tolerate big government interference. Yeah. yeah, that's part of what drives you, I take it. And as a subset of that... I'm so
1: drunk.
0: That's all right. <laughs> and and as, a, as a subset of that question, in a sense, COVID, where you've seen a lot of parents yeah. become much more engaged in their children's education. They've been running school around the kitchen table, probably very yeah. frustrated by it, beginning to wonder just what's happening in their schools.
1: Yes. No, so I, I agree with you about the importance of institutions as mm. as it were a, 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 a filling the gap mm. between individuals and families and the state, and I, I, I totally agree with you all on their importance. And as I say, I think you can see them in, these institutions in many many different aspects of life. Um, but yeah, COVID or the lockdowns around COVID were interesting, weren't they? Because a couple of things did happen. So so one was the. The evidence, I think, all the evidence I've seen shows that the private schools were much better at keeping tabs on the the kids, and and, and I, I think a large number of kids have actually been lost from the system altogether, presumably in, who were going to the state sector and the state schools didn't keep tabs on them. You know, it was the, the data shows that the private schools were giving a whole days' worth of lessons much more frequently than the state schools on average, of course. So that's that's one important thing that a bit of evidence that came out of this. But secondly, as you say, a lot of parents realised that, well, they saw some of the curriculum, some of the lessons that Mm. were going on at schools when they were downloaded or when they saw them in their books and questioned some of the material and questioned a way that made many parents think, perhaps I don't want to be sending my children to that school anymore. Maybe I can be homeschooling. Homeschooling apparently has boomed in America. Yes, yes. my, my guess is in England and Australia too. So many parents were saying, let's look at homeschooling rather than these alternatives. Um, or, or indeed hybrid models. Um, you've got these things called micro-schools now, which are in a sense are groups of home, homeschoolers coming together to create a micro-school, uh, employing a teacher and so on, creating a small school. So. I I think this is too early to say, whether this is a permanent development or will be swiftly sort of moved on as as we get away from lockdowns and so on. But uh, it's worth watching that space definitely, because again, it's bringing in this idea of parents who are in charge of their children's education, wanting to assert more control, wanting to have that choice, and actually sometimes not liking the choices they've been given within the state sector. It's a very important development, I think. I'd like to come back to universities.
0: Mm. Now, you are a very respected uh, Vice-Chancellor, who, you know, a lot of credit to your name for groundbreaking research, and you're heading up a university that's very widely acclaimed. In an age when there is, I'd have to say, increasing and rising concern about the lack of diversity of viewpoints on campuses, can I ask you, firstly, In generic terms, what do you think can be done to encourage more diversity, generally, and specifically? Whether you have any thoughts on what you've been able to do on your own campus?
1: Well, can I come it the other way? The other way. So yes, to start start from. So, so for instance, um, there was a a report published in the UK by Dr. Tony Sewell on race and diversity in various. Mm areas of life including education and um, the the impact of diversity on achievement in education and and so on and so forth and um, the report was published and lockdown was just ending in england so i immediately invited dr tony saw to come and give a talk to us in buckingham about his findings i wrote an article for the spectator on this theme to show a academics can write this sort of thing that many are nervous about writing, or, you know, writing this sort of content, but nonetheless, I was able to do that, invite him and we had a discussion. Many people disagreed profoundly with what he said. It, it was done in the way that universities should do these things in a scholarly, congenial, even convivial fashion. And we all were able to put forward our positions and, uh, uh, and, and come to some conclusions or realize more work was needed to think these things through. So that's, that's a very simple, It was, Elementary, dear Watson, is what you can do there. A controversial report is published. Invite the speaker to present it and discuss it. Elementary, but profoundly important, because we were one of the few universities that did that. Other universities, the University of Nottingham, for example, was going to give the same guy, Dr. Tony Sewell, an honorary doctorate. They withdrew it because of the controversy around his report which actually was you know, soundly based on social science statistics. Can I ask,
0: was it withdrawn at the insistence of the student body or part of the
1: student body? It was withdrawn and then it was justified that this would upset the students. But was that the reason? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. I think the, the academic body was, was nervous. And in a way, rightly so, because there is this problem with universities, isn't there, of not being able to do what I just said, universities should do. Controversial speaker or or, or a speaker with content that some deem controversial, bring him or her along. Let's talk about it. Let's come to some, you know, dis- have some discussion points, points that we need further evidence on and so on. So that, you know, that's elementary, isn't it? But that's the, that's the important thing. And if, if universities, so that's the, simple thing that I did, but if universities did that more often, then there would be better places. Um, The the, the same for, you know, we've got books being published that one can bring those people to talk about the book rather than cancel them or say you can't come. Um, So so those are various things. One of the things I think I mentioned earlier, I want to raise money for a Margaret Thatcher chair because of Margaret's incredible history with the university, a Margaret Thatcher professorship, a Margaret Thatcher Centre or Institute, that will encourage that diversity of opinion because there'll be money there. We can attract some great people to come in and you know, be in that centre, be the professor or the research fellows. We can get some great work going, which is encapsulating that diversity of views, both political, philosophical, ideological. But that said, at my university, we have a center for Cuban studies. We have a center for UN studies. We, so we're not, it's not as if we're pushing out, as it were, things that are more traditional in British universities, more perhaps from what you might call left of center. Um, so you, you want to encourage both. And, and my, my aim, I, I really don't understand it, John, when people say, well, we can't have that person, you know, he'll offend us.
0: You it's a matter of logic, It seems to me that what's overlooked is that if you've got any more than three or four people around a dinner table, for example, Mm. someone is going to feel a bit offended by the conversation, no matter what. By the time you've got 20, you've got no chance of not offending people. By the time you've got several thousand people on a university campus, someone is always going to be offended. I don't like being offended. But I have to say that I've learnt a great deal occasionally in my life from having my ideas very bluntly challenged yeah my initial reaction was being one of disbelief pain yeah. anger don't we have to go through those experiences yeah. if we're to build up the character the resilience the
1: yeah. find some common ground with other people yeah i i, I think you're right i think it's, it's part of growing up isn't it recognizing that you're not always right that actually Sometimes you could be very, very wrong. Uh, sometimes, or sometimes your argument just will benefit from a little bit of nuance. So mm. you might have a debate with someone who, in a sense that that phrase moves the Overton window of your ideas further. You don't agree with that person, but you can see, ah, yes, I can concede that point that he or she was making is valid. So your own views shift slightly one way or the other. Um, but yeah, but that's what universities should be about. That's what, that's what, that's the purpose of a university education, or at least one of them, is to enable you to explore ideas, to enable society to explore ideas where they lead, to enable the institutions of universities to explore ideas, to arrive at an increased knowledge base, to arrive at increased uh, closeness to, to truth. And for you as an individual to understand the virtues of that process, without this we're we're doomed, as Margaret said, what did she say? Like civilizations before us who were eventually thrust aside and dispossessed by more vigorous rivals if we don't embrace freedom. I think she says it already. Good note to
0: end on, but one last question. I remember when I was a university student, an academically inclined older person said to me, the old Irish saying, and quite assertive about it in his own gentle way, do not judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Mm. Why is it in this age when we talk so much about tolerance and inclusion and diversity that actually we find it really hard to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and genuinely understand their perspective, the society they live in, their life experiences? Why has it become so hard for us?
1: Any thoughts? I mean, the immediate response is that it's it's hard it's always been hard it's empathy is not the easiest virtue to, to develop um it's always been hard to do that, but at one point in time, we were forced to do that or we were pushed to do that. you know our parents, our teachers, our lecturers would push us to think these things. maybe this is just an initial response to what you're saying, but maybe. That pressure is gone now. And the pressure from your peers and whatever and yourself is let's just go the easy route. We don't have to push ourselves. That's an unreflected opinion. You know, unreflective opinion, but it's it's it could be the it could be part of the answer.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you why I think it's important. Yeah. I think in the West, as we watch what's happening in Russia today, yeah. and when we look at what China's doing and yeah. what the Prime Minister in Australia calls the emergence of an arc of autocracy. We need to actually understand why, it's no use just saying they're offensive, why other people think differently. What ideologies are driving them? Can we get inside them well enough to actually understand them? Mm. Why do 80% of people apparently in Russia support what Mr. Putin is doing when we Mm. so vehemently reject it? Uh, uh, I think in past ages, I remember my lecturers at university being quite insistent that we try and contextualize, try and understand what was really happening, then you're better able, not only to grapple with it, but to treat with respect those who have a different view.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to grapple with in Mm. in my answer, yeah.
0: Well, you're about to do some, probably some more work. I'm rather hoping we might be able to talk about it. Is there anything you want to say about that coming work or is it under wraps until it appears?
1: I've got a working title, it's called Forbidden. Yeah. Um, it's about education and uh, yes, I'd love to talk about it. I, I, I'm so busy as Vice-Chancellor, I don't have any time to read books let alone write books, but uh, hopefully in a year or two or perhaps even sooner. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much for giving us so generously your time. No, thank you for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For more content, visit johnanderson.net.au.